everybody, how y'all doing? I'm Michael, joined by Alex as always. How's it going? And this is Fall Through Potholes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to fall off the rails. And hey, Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. This is, uh, if you're listening to this, this is the first episode of 2024. A year that is definitely going to be good. There's definitely nothing bad that is going to happen this year at all. Mm-hmm. Gonna be off on the right foot. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting this off in the best way possible by gonna probably, like, lose my voice halfway through this episode, as well as maybe possibly fall asleep, because Alex and I were at the Sonic Symphony last night, and it was rad. It was. Uh, Yes. They ended on Live and Learn, which was the most obvious song to end it on, and I yep. was so happy they did. It's the correct choice. Yeah, really the only choice. Really is. It It made me realize that for better or worse, Sonic Adventure 2 remains the peak of the franchise. <laughs> which is not great when you <laughs> really not, think no, about it. No, it's not really ideal, but it's also just something we all know to be true. Yeah, that's. I really like Sonic Adventure 2, even Me the too. bad parts of that. Like yeah. The, the weird cart minigame. Oh, God. But yeah, that's not a. Uh, yeah, just no. There's no quality control in that series. Or I guess there is now, but there used to be no quality control in that series, and it was dire. I would argue about there being that much quality control now. <laughs> it's a fluctuating state, really. Yeah, it really is. It really is. But Alex, today we're not talking about Sonic, though we probably will at some point this probably. year. Probably. I mean, we already did once, but we certainly can again. Oh, trust me, I could <laughs> I could at least do, let's say, seven more episodes about <laughs> Sonic, depending on what direction we go. But today we're talking about something different, because Alex, it's a new year. Mm-hmm. And funnily enough, my notes I have were probably well-rested, but as we already established... <laughs> no. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> but I did want to get this year started off on the right foot. You see, I had plans to start this year with a multi-part series on something that... Well, a series that didn't land, essentially. Mm. Uh, you know, had a few bright spots, but one that was like hilariously over-ambitious. Uh, but then I decided... I We just got done talking about Silent Hill Ascension. Mm. And mm-hmm. while I, I think those episodes were good, it was a slog to write. <laughs> yeah. And I said, you know what? No. I got halfway through the outline and filling in some notes and doing research, and I said, not today. <laughs> I'm going to talk about something I like. I Something that I really, really, really like. Okay. And that's Final Fantasy VI. Ooh. Ooh, interesting. Yes. Alex, have you played Final Fantasy VI? I have played the first, like, hour and a half of Final Fantasy VI. Interesting. So you haven't quite gotten that deep into it. No. I sort of saw, like, what was going on there, and then I I think I fell off and played Dark Souls or something. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair (laughs) enough. I was going to ask you where it ranked on your Final Fantasy Pantheon, but I guess the answer is, uh... Uh, kind of, yeah. Like, I haven't played enough to really give it a fair shake. Um, Mm -hmm. it's also weird because, like, Final Fantasy VII is sort of this hard break for, like, ranking Final Fantasies to me. Mm -hmm. It's like, you have one through six, and then you, you have, like, the 2D ones and the 3D ones, I almost think of it. Yeah. And I would almost argue that 15 is, like, another break where it's like, okay, now you have, like, the, 
real-time action game ones. Yeah, yeah, like it's um it's a it's like a change in guard like a, a different era like yeah. when you start with 15. Yeah, funnily enough, I think that as well, except I think Final Fantasy 6 is that break. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, because it also has a huge like changing of the guard and mm-hmm. a lot of the mechanical changes they do in 6 are carried over into 7. Right. Uh everything from like how like uh, the magic system is handled in that, like the espers mm-hmm. and whatnot, having to equip them to learn spells is kind of like transfer the materia in seven in right. a weird way. Uh, not not quite one to one, but close enough. Or like stuff mm-hmm. like limit breaks or originate in Final Fantasy VI, for instance. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I can see that. I do remember having the feeling. So starting it, I, you know, I'm looking at 2D sprite artwork, and so my mind's sort of going to like Final Fantasy One, Final Fantasy Three. I've played those. And then you sort of start to get into the battle system. And I remember having the thought of, oh, I don't actually know what this is going to do. Yeah. Like, I feel like anything could happen with this system. Mm -hmm. Because it feels so unregulated or unconstrained to, like, what has happened before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... I think there's there's a real good reason for that, too. Like, we'll get into this a little bit, but, like, Final Fantasy 1 through 5, uh, with the exception of 4, was this, like, really weird thing where it's, like, it's highly customizable, like, uh, game with, like, it's all of its characters. Like, oh, and they, like, have, like, very distinct classes, but, mm-hmm. but you could, like, customize their skills. Like, even going back to, like, the original Final Fantasy, like... Mm-hmm. You, like, it was very static after you picked, like, say, the fighter and the white right. mage or whatnot. But the fact that you could select, like, a fighter or a white mage to start off with... Right. Like, indicated a lot more control over your party than would... Than you would... Than would initially... You would initially see, and then you get the Final Fantasy V, and they just go absolutely nuts with that. Right. Do you want a four-monk party? It's a bad idea, but you can try it. Yeah, you... You want to have an incredibly bad time? Sure, do that, or do four <laughs> white mages. Why not? Yeah. Four white mages may actually arguably be better than four monks. Probably. I think so. Yeah, but most likely. Most likely. So yeah, no. Final Fantasy VI is... It's an excellent game. A real, Mm -hmm. like, a real culmination... Not even a culmination, like, real, like... A culmination of some ideas that they started out with. A heartbreak with others. In fact, a heartbreak with, like, I think a lot of conventions of Final Fantasy that Mm -hmm. ultimately end up making it interesting. Uh... And oddly enough, despite all that, and the fact we're going to talk about this game, and I'm going to have, like, nothing but good things to say about it, is probably my fourth favorite Final Fantasy overall. Mm, Interesting. Yeah, which kind of goes to show how strong the Final Fantasy series is, I guess. Yeah, fair. I I was also very much struck by this seems to be the game where they started, like, playing with presentation. Mm Mm-hmm in a way they would continue to do. And I was struck by that when you were thrown into a boss battle early on in the game. Mm. And as soon as you do something with one of your characters, the other characters break, like, combat order to comment about it and have a conversation about that just happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to definitely talk about that, like, later on this episode, but I think mm-hmm. what it does with its battle system and its sprites and whatnot compared to other Final Fantasy games actually yeah. do a lot for its story and characterization. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that one moment very early on, I think you're talking about when Terra uses magic for the first yeah. time in front of her party members, is, yeah, mm-hmm. it's real good. It's very good. Just the way that they, they like, put the game aside to have a conversation mm-hmm. is like, whoa, y- hmm. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, and it's like that's not the first time they they're ever going to do that in a Final mm. Fantasy game. Both four and five do that, but they mm. also remain static the entire time. Right. Um. So like it'll just have like a text box up top, and that's it. Right. But yeah, no, it's it's really cool what it does with like everything about it. Um. And just kind of like jump a little bit into it and even explain what Final Fantasy VI is for the people out there who don't know. Final Fantasy VI, or Final Fantasy III, as it's known in international territories due to Square deliberately not localizing the real Final <laughs> Fantasy II, III, and V, is often considered to not only be one of the best Final Fantasy games, but arguably one of the best role-playing games of all time. Mm. Released on April 2nd, 1994 in Japan and October 11th, 1994 in North America, it was a commercial success and a critical one as well. Many top Super Nintendo games like lists will like place it within their top 10, uh, usually just below its contemporary Chrono Trigger, which was released the following year, 1995. Mm -hmm. uh, IGN's Best 100 Games of All Time list, published in 2021, actually places at 44, ahead of games like Call of Duty 4 and World of Warcraft, which uh, I think that's a stretch for at least World of Warcraft, but... Mm. You know what? I like it as a as a person who loves <laughs> Super Nintendo games. It's a game for many firsts for the Final Fantasy series as a whole, from behind-the-scenes changes in the development team to major mechanical changes that we've already started discussing. It's an incredibly important game, at least in terms for the Final Fantasy series. It also feels surprisingly forgotten, at mm. least for a Final Fantasy game. Despite its overall quality, it comes off as like a victim of poor placement. Mm -hmm. Like you're talking about how like Final Fantasy seven is feels like this real sea change or whatnot. Right. And yeah, it, it totally was. And I think because of that Final Fantasy six ends up being this weird middle child that mm -hmm. is massively overshadowed by uh, by Final Fantasy seven and even a little bit by Final Fantasy four before that. Mm. Like. Before that, you, once again, you had the much-beloved Final Fantasy IV, the first game in the series on the Super Nintendo, and also the first where the characters had a distinct identity. Right. That's a real thing with the Final Fantasy series is that, like, two technically Furion and Maria are different characters, but honestly, they might as well not be. Right. Uh, as I mentioned here, Final Fantasy II could sort of claim this, but not really, in my opinion. Uh, even Final Fantasy V, the one Super Nintendo game not released in the United States, it, it feels more remembered, if nothing else, for the four-job Fiesta charity event that runs every year. Uh, for the record, that is my favorite Final Fantasy game. <laughs> Hell of a game. Mm. Mostly because of the mechanical things that are behind the scenes. I have no idea what happens in Final Fantasy V. Oh, buddy, you fight a dude named X-Death. <laughs> He's right. as awesome okay. as his name X sounds. X-Death is five. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Th that's like, that and the bridge battle music are the two things I know about five. Yep. And honestly, that's all you need to know about five. Fair. Uh, that and the job system, that game is great and very broken, but. Oh, God, I love job systems so much. Job systems are so good and they always screw them up. They, they always, always but, do. But they do in such an interesting way. Mm-hmm is why I love going back to Final Fantasy V, for instance. Like, even, so going back to VI, though, like, even for mm -hmm. myself, Final Fantasy VI didn't do much for me upon release. Mm -hmm. I, I did rent it, and I thought it was cool, but I was also eight. Mm. <laughs> so I didn't really get into it until it was ported to the PlayStation in 1995. And even then, that port was so bad, I didn't beat it <laughs> until, I think, like, 2003, when I played through a via emulator, which I think is how actually a lot of people have beaten this game. Mm -hmm. I, I literally first downloaded the ROM from a website called the Cult of Kefka. 
which was an amazing website. It was named yeah. for the villain of Final Fantasy VI, and also, for some reason, posted a lot of George W. Bush fan fiction. Ah. <laughs> uh, uh, not, not favorable fan fiction. Right. But, like, okay. it, it, was, it was weird. It was really, really weird. It's like, here's my ROM site, and also, do you want to read my fan fiction about U.S. political figures, even though I live in England? It's, it was great. They also, of course, told you to delete the ROMs within 24 hours, and I absolutely did not. Yeah, well. Come at me, Square. <laughs> or he bought your why, game like three times. Why don't you try releasing like a good definitive edition of something for once? That would be nice. I'd appreciate it. It's so ridiculous, their inability to just make like, here's the good version available now. To be fair, a lot of the Pixel Remaster is. Mm. I will say that much. One through five... Great versions of those games. Six, oddly enough, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically, I think uh, via emulation is how a lot of people experience this game outside of Japan. Mm-hmm. Because while it sold incredibly well in Japan, uh, about 2.5 million copies to be exact, well, I guess that isn't exact, but you know what I mean, it apparently right. wasn't much of a success in the United States. I don't have much in a way of sales figures as much as the worlds of Hironobu Sakaguchi, the producer and father of Final Fantasy, who simply mm-hmm. said it was not a commercial success in that region. So Fair th- enough. Yeah. So I feel like this game is starting to become forgotten in some ways, or at mm-hmm. least forgotten as much as a Final Fantasy game can be forgotten. Right. I, I do have to say, I think Square's like overall marketing and global release strategy really didn't do it favors. Hmm. I think calling it Final Fantasy 3 probably did not encourage people to play it as huh. well. Why do you think that? I I think probably a lot of people didn't necessarily realize that they could just buy that game and play it without having played a Final Fantasy before. Mm, okay, yeah. It's, it's one of those like, well, I didn't play Final Fantasy 1 or 2, so will I know what's going on? Versus when they just drop seven on you, you're kind of like, all right, screw it. What's this? Yeah, there's, there's been seven of these things? All right, whatever. 3D graphics go cool. Let's just check yeah. this out. Yeah, okay. I, I can see that. I can see that. WrestleMania told me there's a dragon in it. <laughs> or, or WWF Raw or whenever they played that commercial. Oh, man. There was there was a dragon in that. There was. That, that dragon was a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good old Materia Keeper. I think it was Materia Keeper. Anyways, yeah, so it's kind of forgotten, and Mm -hmm. that's why I really want to talk about it today. And I want to not only just, like, talk about its development and its plot, but I want to go over the graphics, the music, Mm. the translation, and how I feel about it, because ultimately, I still feel like this is a game that deserves its praises. Mm -hmm. So, to begin with this, we have to do that annoying disclaimer that always comes up when we talk about any Final Fantasy before Final Fantasy VII. The release order of these games outside Japan is wacky because of business decisions made by Square at the time. And so all the names of the games are wrong. (laughs) Final Fantasy IV is known as Final Fantasy II in Western markets, and Final Fantasy VI is known as Final Fantasy III as well. There are many reasons for this, but the simplest explanation is this. The original Final Fantasy came out internationally in 1990, just one year before Final Fantasy IV came out in Japan. So when it came to porting over a sequel, they just skipped those and localized <laughs> Final Fantasy IV as Final Fantasy II here. For VI, the reasons are a little bit more complicated. 
they actually completed a translation of Final Fantasy V, like, and then mm. just decided not to release it. But much of the reason is still similar. By the time they were ready, Final Fantasy VI was the new hotness, so they just took that and localized it as three. For the purposes of this podcast, we'll be referring to these games as they are now localized, by which I mean the Japanese release order, unless otherwise specified. I feel like I have now done this about two or three times with this podcast, and I hate every time I do it. <laughs> it's insane. The international brand management of Final Fantasy in this time is wildly insane. Mm-hmm. Because they were like, yeah, screw two and three. No one cares. But mm-hmm. it's not that no one cares about Final Fantasy. Because we're going to take games that aren't Final Fantasy and call them Final Fantasy in America. <laughs> yep. We're gonna we're gonna have was it Final Fantasy Adventures and mm-hmm. Final Fantasy what was the other one Secrets Legends the Final Fantasy Legend and then the Final Fantasy Legend two and three yeah those games aren't Final Fantasy and have nothing to do with Final Fantasy thematically or mechanically <laughs> but the Final Fantasy brand is kind of strong so we'll just call it that yeah it'll be fine. But we won't release the actual Final Fantasy games over there. <laughs> to be fair, they probably looked at Dragon Quest, where which like the first four games, mm-hmm. I believe, did actually release over here. Or at least, I, I know one and two did. They may have skipped three, and four right. definitely did come over mm-hmm. for the NES in like 1991. And it sold so little, they actually, Square didn't even report the financials on it. Yeah, but Dragon Quest sucks. <laughs> I, that's I, the stance I'm taking on that today. That's fair. <laughs> to be fair, up until Dragon Quest V, I would agree. I, I actually do legit like legit mm. like uh, Dragon Quest V an awful lot. I, I think Dragon Quest is fine. I just may, I mainly just get annoyed by how little it changes from one game to another. It's it was a game for the longest time that seemed to be afraid of change, yeah. Like, I, I, for at least eight of those games, I would just look at it and say, that is clearly a Dragon Quest. I couldn't tell you which one. Yep. Yeah, I was looking at uh, footage for Dragon Quest VI recently, which mm-hmm. is the last entry on the Super Nintendo. Uh, that wasn't a remake or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh man, they actually do like dynamic things with the sprites and whatnot, like characters laying down and like doing other stuff. But then like... You actually get into the gameplay and whatnot, and they're still doing the thing where, like, characters just march in place, because that's Mm -hmm. how they did in the original game, so we're going to keep that up, and, like, other things just make the thing look so damn old. Yeah. It's like, oh, man. But, yeah. Like, one of the things I legitimately like about the Final Fantasy franchise is whether I think a given game is good or not, it's at least probably going to try something different than the ones that came before it. Yeah, actually, yeah, pretty much. Like, the, I I can't think of a mainline Final Fantasy that is like, here is that last game, but again. Yeah, like, the most I could say is that there's definitely bones of a game that, mm. uh, like, they, they share common elements, and there's, like, bones of the battle system and other mechanics that they do carry from game to game. Like, right. you could definitely see, like, a progression from, like, 1 to 3 and 3 to 5, but mm-hmm. oddly enough, not 1 to 2 or 2 right. to 3 or 3 to 4. Well, and 3 also sort of introduced a job system. It did, and it was very bad in there. Yeah, but they had an idea. They did. And eventually they would get it sort of right. Yes. But yeah, that is true. Like, they do, like, legit try to do, like, different things from game to game, which is nice. 
So yeah, for the purposes of this, I don't think we really need to get into like the history of Final Fantasy as a franchise, mm. but we'll give like a little explanation. In short, Final Fantasy is the flagship role-playing game series from the Japanese company Square, now Square Enix. Nowadays, it's the most popular RPG franchise by most metrics, I would say. Mm -hmm. Though back in the 90s, it was second behind Enix's Dragon Quest. Dragon Quest's sheer success is actually kind of relevant to today's episode, because you see, while Final Fantasy has had excellent success in its home country of Japan, Dragon Quest, for most of its life, blew it out of the water. For instance, when Final Fantasy V was released in 1992, it sold about 2.45 million copies in its original run, Whereas Dragon Quest V, released the same year, sold 2.8 million copies. And this is maybe the closest gap between, like, two comparable entries in the series. It's usually far wider than that. And given that this is just one country, that's a considerably larger amount of copies sold. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, Final Fantasy had something that Dragon Quest kind of never did until much later in its its life, which is an actual Western audience. Mm. So... Because of that, Square pretty much right away, after um, Nintendo helped them localize the original Final Fantasy, decided to kind of pick up the ball and run with it, continue localizing the Final Fantasy series over here in the United States, and as we mentioned, even taking other games in other series and making those Final Fantasy games <laughs> just to kind of like run off of that wave of momentum. Uh, and it's, that reason, it's with that we get into the development of Final Fantasy VI. So, development of Final Fantasy VI started in 1992, more or less right after release of Final Fantasy V. Now, right away, this is going to be the end of an era for Square and the Final Fantasy series, because in 1991, Hironobu Sakaguchi, the arguable father of the series, got promoted to executive vice president within the company. What this meant was that Sakaguchi, not only the director, but one of the lead writers for literally every main game in the series up to that point, Mm could no longer do those roles directly. This is not to say he's not going to have a huge hand in the series going forward, but he's definitely going to step back. Now, games are often made by a collection of people rather than one person. But when somebody with such outsized influence steps back, it's going to lead to a significant shift in the feeling, mechanics, everything. There's just simply no avoiding that, right? Mm -hmm. That being said, these games aren't made by one person, and Final Fantasy has... Honestly, extremely good track record, even up to the present day, of keeping core staff together from game to game. So when Sakaguchi stepped back, in stepped a co-director team of Hiroyuki Ito and Yoshinori Katase. Now, we've talked about Katase quite a bit on this podcast already. Mm-hmm. Uh, see our episodes for Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy X. But just to give a little bit of a refresher for this episode, he's a relatively new face at Square at this point having joined in 1990 doing game design and scenario writing for Saiken Densetsu, also known as the Secret of Mana series over here, and later joining the Final Fantasy V team as the event planner and co-writer with Sakaguchi. Um, I'll have to kind of fact-check myself on this one, but I believe that is his first Final Fantasy game that he has a writing credit on. Mm. Now, he's going to later go on to achieve great fame as the director of future Final Fantasy games, including Final Fantasy VII and Final Fantasy X, both for good and bad reasons. Hiroyuki Ito himself has been involved with the Final Fantasy series since its inception back in 1987, first as a debugger and later as a battle system designer for Final Fantasies 4 and 5. This would be his first game he directed, and weirdly enough, his last until Final Fantasy 9. Hmm. Uh, he would also d- uh, direct Final Fantasy 12 after that as well. Now, 
on its face, it's a bit odd to go with not one, but two co-directors for this game and new ones at that. Mm -hmm. And this is purely my speculation, but it seems like they wanted Katase to take over for Sakaguchi and paired him with the comparatively more experienced Ito to help smooth over the transition. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, right? And this is somewhat reflected with how they handled their director duties. Katase was responsible for the event planning and scenario writing, so stuff he was already doing beforehand. Mm -hmm. And Ito was working on the gameplay systems and battle mechanics, something he was already doing with previous right. entries. Now, Sakaguchi himself wasn't absent. He oversaw this co-director team and made sure all the disparate elements flowed together properly. So for a producer, he was actually more involved than I think a typical producer at a video game company would be. Mm hmm. Because it seemed like he actually had a pretty heavy hand in certain parts of this. Right. Such as this next part that, honestly, on its face, it seems like a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> See, he's going to be there to make sure everything gels together. And that's good because he's going to make an interesting decision early on that's going to make this task difficult on its face. So on top of being the reason there's this co-director situation, uh, there's also some evidence he's behind another significant decision involving the writing. There's not going to be a single main character, or at least that's going to be the intention. Mm -hmm. Now, as we will later learn when we discuss the plot, this isn't true. There right. is definitely a main character in this. <laughs> right. But I can see how they sort of mean for there not to be one. Yeah, they, they do halfway through the game try very hard to make Terra the not the main character. <laughs> right. And but they, it's too late. It's too late. And then they fall backwards into making her <laughs> the main character again. It's kind of funny how it happens, actually. But um, what is true is that, you know, it meant that this game is going to have a larger than normal cast for a Final Fantasy game. Mm -hmm. Like it's going to be a much more ensemble than previous games. Kind of similar to something like Final Fantasy IV, which also actually had a pretty large cast. Mm. Now, on top of this, how these characters were going to be written was going to be different as well. You see, instead of say, having, say, Katase write the story, it's more like Sakaguchi came up with the broad overall concept, which the concept of this was a conflict with some sort of empire, uh, which is basically what they, he did for Final Fantasy II. Mm -hmm. Sakaguchi has two ideas. <laughs> Crystals and evil empires. Yep. <laughs> it's... Kind of funny, actually. But yeah, he had came up with the broad overall concept, and it had different team members come up with the characters and their backstories. Sakaguchi himself heavily influenced creation of the main character Terra and Locke. Katase, sell, the characters Celis and Gaul. Tetsuya Nomura, hey, he's here too. Hey! Yeah, he got started in Final Fantasy V. He's back here to basically make sure the battle sprites look nice, and also to help create the uh, characters Shadow and Setzer. In case you're wondering why Setzer shows up in Kingdom Hearts 2 for some reason, <laughs> that's why. Nomura just really loves inserting his characters into things. He really, really does. Still, I still remember to this day when I first played Kingdom Hearts 2 and like Setzer of all people showed up. I'm like, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a cut. Okay, sure. <laughs> Even the future co-creator of Xenogears and Xenosaga, Kaori Tanaka was involved. Helping create the Royal Brothers, Edgar and Sabin. Now, it's not to say these characters were created in a vacuum and they just like right. squished them together. Others, such as Katasi, would contribute their own ideas to these characters. But this appears to be largely how they were designed on a first and possibly second pass basis. And it was a very deliberate choice by the team. 
You can really kind of see everyone's biases and who their characters are. You really, really can. Yeah. Like, like Terra and Locke are like, even like their visual design kind of harkens back to like previous Final Fantasy characters. Like mm-hmm. Locke is a pretty typical thief and Terra is like a kind of a kind of a pretty typical knight in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, Nomura, of course, is like the the overly ambitiously designed Shadow and Setzer. <laughs> Yeah, it it totally totally makes sense. Now, getting back to like uh, the writing of all this, Katasi went on to explain like this particular process in an interview he gave with Edge Magazine from March of 2013, saying, "Quote: The idea was to transform the Final Fantasy characters of the time from mere ciphers for like fighting into like true characters with substance and backstories who can evoke more interesting or complex feelings in the player." Since the scale of each character's individual story was expanding, I began linking this concept to the concept of different dramas developing according to the player's choice of character in the game. End quote. Now, this isn't a novel concept, and while I think, for instance, this sells games such as Final Fantasy IV a little short in terms of their characters, mm-hmm. I can at least see what he's trying to say with this, and I do think they do succeed at this to an extent, though we'll get into why I think this in a little bit. Regardless, it's this writing choice combined with Ido and his team handling the battle system separately that feels like it should have led to something that was rather disjointed, if not outright mm-hmm. disastrous. Mm-hmm. Instead, however, what happened is that over the course of a year, the team managed to put together something that felt incredibly collaborative instead. One where the story and the gameplay didn't feel siloed off, but rather complement each other in ways that are only touched on in previous games. It, alongside the changing of the guard from Sakaguchi to Katase, also allowed the team to overhaul what a Final Fantasy game even was. Like, up until this point, with the exception of Final Fantasy IV, which is kind of like the weird elephant in the room whenever I mm-hmm. talk about Final Fantasy VI's innovations, because they do some things a little bit earlier than them before they just right. kind of backtrack back to five. Six, though, like, decides to just completely break a lot of the conventions and kind of allow for future Final Fantasies to go a little bit more nuts. And I think in order to establish this, we got to talk about a few facts about the Final Fantasy series. Because you see, for a casual observer, Final Fantasy VI isn't much of a departure for the series. Mm-hmm. For Final Fantasy fans, however, the game is incredibly different. And to highlight that, let's talk about the general structure and setting of a Final Fantasy game up to this point. Mm. And this even includes four, too. Mm-hmm. Final Fantasy games take place in medi- like a European medieval fantasy world that's usually heavily inspired, or depending on who you ask, ripping off Dungeons and Dragons and Lord <laughs> of the Rings. Usually, you play as four heroes who are tied to four elemental crystals that are located in the game world and usually represent the elements of wind, fire, water, and earth. These heroes are usually heavily customizable and not really bespoke characters, so you can pick what their class is and, and even in some games heavily influence their stats. These, char- these games, sticking to the inspiration of Dungeons & Dragons, will often feature areas and situations that are heavily anachronistic to their settings. Kind of almost like they're like playsets or whatnot, or modules. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they often would have like locations that are like more sci-fi rather than fantasy, for instance. Like They weren't afraid to just throw that in there for no reason. Mm-hmm. And finally, they often have these four heroes fighting for the light against some sort of embodiment of the darkness. Sometimes this darkness is more metaphorical, such as in Final Fantasy IV. Sometimes it's painfully literal, (laughs) such as the last boss of Final Fantasy III literally being called the Cloud of Darkness. (laughs) Or the aforementioned X-Death from Final Fantasy V. 
<laughs> now, there are little exceptions to each of these games. Like, Final Fantasy IV has a large amount of characters that are pretty bespoke and can't be customized. And Final Fantasy II actually has nothing to do with crystals, oddly <laughs> enough. But you get the idea that there are tropes in these games. Right. Final Fantasy VI basically throws all of that out. Like, four customizable characters? Try more like 14. And while they aren't completely static, they do have their own bespoke abilities. Like, Edgar's going to be the one who uses, like, machines like crossbows in combat. Uh, Sabin is the punch boy. You know, that sort of stuff. Medieval fantasy with anachronistic backdrops? Final Fantasy VI ditches that for a more Victorian, or more precisely, Second Industrial Revolution with a steampunk bent sort of take. Mm -hmm. One that's very cohesive. Like, you don't just Mm -hmm. go into sci-fi rooms just randomly, for instance. Right. Finally, even though the main villain, Kefka, is certainly evil, he isn't the -the on-the-nose embodiment of darkness like previous villains. Now, Final Fantasy VI didn't completely change everything about what a Final Fantasy was, but what it did do was allow for later entries to get especially weird. Past this game, you're going to have entries that take place in the modern world, that are legit sci-fi or post-apocalyptic, and will eventually radically change the gameplay mechanics in a way that will feel decidedly different, if not completely unlike what Final Fantasy is. Like, see Final Fantasy 15, for instance, or 16. Mm-hmm. Final Fantasy 1 through 5 felt like a culmination of something. Like, you could see the progression of where they're going to that point. Right. Whereas 6 felt like opening a door to something new. Now, once again, it should be noted that it feels like an attempt was sort of made with Final Fantasy IV in this regard. Mm-hmm. But for one reason or another, they went back to the well with Final Fantasy V. And even then, they still kept a lot of those tropes, like the crystals and whatnot, the medieval fantasy right. setting, so on and so forth. Now, uh, and I can imagine that Final Fantasy IV being the first entry on the Super Nintendo, mm-hmm. there was some ambition to see, like, what, what, what else could we do with Final Fantasy? Mm-hmm. Just sort of, like you said, dipping the toe in the water. And then, I guess not quite running with some of those things, but just sort of experimenting. But as you said, with Katase coming in, this is sort of a good opportunity to actually move forward and embrace new ideas. Yeah, totally. Like, like I think it's like hard not to undersell. I think I think it's hard to undersell the importance of uh, Sakaguchi giving the reins to Katase and mm-hmm. like moving forward from there for where this series ends up going. You know, it's right. it's kind of like when Shigeru Miyamoto relinquish control of Zelda to Eiji mm-hmm. Amiyuma or like Zelda, like where right. they went with that, like, like it ended up going into a completely weird and crazy direction from there. And it's kind of the same with Final Fantasy in many ways. So with all that out of the way, I want to talk about how this game felt. And by that, I mean, it's graphics, it's music and how they all tie together to tell a story. So once again, let's talk about what Final Fantasy was up to this point. Graphically, Final Fantasy games were largely very bright and not very detailed. Outside of certain characters, and broadly speaking, the enemy sprites are really portraits used in battle. They didn't really animate. Mm -hmm. Now, this was largely due to the limitations inherent to these platforms these games were released on. You didn't have a whole lot of cartridge space, so you couldn't do a lot of animations. And the systems they were released on couldn't exactly do detailed graphics on. This is a simple explanation. But the Nintendo Entertainment System, where Final Fantasy 1 through 3 were released, could display 25 colors out of 54 color palette at a time. Once again, there's ways around this, so this is oversimplified, but my point mm. is, is that it often produced a look where characters and backgrounds were very flat, with mm-hmm. bright colors and without a ton of shading. Final Fantasy games were no different, and they tend to be very bright because of this. Right. 
Now, despite releasing on the more capable Super Nintendo, this look continued on in both Final Fantasy IV and V. For IV, it, it sort of makes sense. It sort of has like one foot. Its origins have like one foot in the door of uh, mm -hmm. on the NES and one foot on the Super Nintendo with the way it's the weird development around that in Secret of Mana were at the time. But mm -hmm. one reason or another, they kept that going in five as well. Although I should say the games were getting more detailed in terms of color and the artwork and whatnot. Mm -hmm. They just weren't still relatively simple compared to what was coming down the road for the series. By the time Final Fantasy VI came out, the Super Nintendo was roughly about four and a half years old at that point, and it showed. And what I mean by that is that by 1994, a lot of the limitations and strengths of the console were very well understood. Mm -hmm. And programming knowledge had built up to the point that you can get impressive results graphically out of the hardware. What this meant is that Final Fantasy VI was going to take full advantage of what the Super Nintendo had to offer. Now, once again, this is simplified, and I'm not going to lie, I had literally three paragraphs talking about color math here, <laughs> and then I realized that was too much. <laughs> but the Super Nintendo could display 256 colors at the same time out of a palette of 32,768. So huge jump there. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Now, by this point, developers had figured out tricks to allow their games to display even more colors on screen at once, as well as other visual tricks. So you can actually make it there be like even more detail in this. Mm -hmm. And Final Fantasy VI is going to take full advantage of all these tricks to create one of the most detailed-looking RPGs that ever existed, until they're going to somehow surpass it with Chrono Trigger next year, mm -hmm. oddly enough. Now, this is an audio podcast, so I'm going to do my best to describe what this allowed the team to do. The overworld went from being an overly bright and sunny place to a color more akin to like a partly cloudy day. The colors were more desaturated, and it seemed like there were more shadows from things like rocks and foliage. Like if you look at like the battle backgrounds for the games, like they're like from four all the way to like six, it's like night and day with the amount of detail they throw in there. Mm -hmm. And like speaking of them, like the extra colors allow them to do things like have buildings appear at like an angle and have like a side receded into the distance down a dark alleyway. Or see through like the mist-lined trees out into the distance. Like, have a sense of depth that you wouldn't expect, really. Mm -hmm. It may seem like the characters were battling on, say, a mountainside, rather than a playset of a mountain. It allowed places like Castle Figaro, one of the first places you go in the game, to not only look like an incredibly rounded-out stone castle, but one that had been modified to have metal piping that gleamed in the desert sun, ventilation fans that spun out excess heat, Shadows from not only every contour of the sand dunes, but from the castle itself. What this allowed the team to do was something they couldn't quite do before. Create a world that had the same depth as the stories that they were writing. And I mean that very literally. Mm -hmm. Like, looking at, like, the way that they have, like, shadows off of everything compared to, like, something like Final Fantasy IV that actually rarely featured shadows. Right. Is kind of nuts. Now, this graphical fidelity wasn't just reserved for the mostly static backgrounds. The characters benefited from this increased fidelity as well. While the characters were all written by separate people, the visual design was done by one, Yoshitaka Amano, the longtime mm. character and visual designer for Final Fantasy, going all the way back to the very first game. Mm -hmm. Now, Alex, I don't know how you feel about Amano, but I love the guy. Great artist. Mm -hmm. I think his art is excellent, yes. Yes. And it's very, very different from anything out there. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, before he got to work on Final Fantasy, he was best known for his work on Vampire Hunter D. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's known for an art style that has characters that it's going to be impossible to kind of describe this, but it, it's, 
characters that often wear clothes that are like somehow both flowing and tight. Yes. Hair that's somehow both long and short and have features that are somehow both soft and sharp. They're, they're so soft that I tried to pronounce the soft as both <laughs> soft and sharp at the same time, which honestly I think perfectly describes it. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Like, all of his characters look also like the most disaffected, like, have the, like the most odd we about the current situation ever, no and matter they, what's they, going they, on. They don't have a, he doesn't really do like emotional facial expressions. He does not at all. It's actually kind of hilarious how emotionless all of his characters are and how like that's like not a negative somehow. Yeah, I, I would describe his entire art style as wistful. Yes. Yes, I think that is 100% accurate. And like it's once again an art style that's difficult for me to describe, but one that is yeah. beautiful incredibly detailed and absolutely impossible to translate to a 16 by 8 <laughs> pixel sprite <laughs> they just stopped trying after a certain point they really did and that point was very early on it was the very first game as it turns out like one of my favorite like so like they'll, they'll have like somebody else who would do other like another second pass on the sprites to make sure that they could like actually like sometimes like mm -hmm. on official artwork and mm -hmm. definitely on the sprites to make sure that those Amano illustrations would translate to, like, a sprite and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And almost all the time, they would just give up, like, right away. Yep. Like, mm -hmm. my favorite probably is Final Fantasy V with the main character, Bartz. Like, Bartz <laughs> has, like, this, like, very short cape that goes at a diagonal. It has this, like, weird pauldron that has, like, spikes coming off of it. Mm -hmm. But, like, that are not sharp, but they, like, kind of, like, curve all over the place and a long sword and, like, these weird boots that go up high. Mm -hmm. And their solution to that was, like, he has a blue tunic on with a lighter blue undershirt. <laughs> We're going to stop there. We're done. <laughs> so, yeah, Amano's designs often had to be heavily compromised in order to make them work within the limitations of the platform. And mm -hmm. it isn't until the last game he's the character designer on before the team finally gets close to nailing it. Mm-hmm. Like the details, such as Edgar's royal armor that's over his flowing robes along with his long ponytail, actually somehow survived the translation. Or transition, I guess is the more accurate mm -hmm. word to say. Uh, a character who's actually a side character that's not required for the game, a character by the name of Gogo. He has a man who wears a myriad of robes, coverings that have bright fringes, and just kind of like go off in every one direction, actually somehow survived the transition. It's really mm. weird. Um, now, not every character does. Uh, one of the main characters, Locke, is like has like these like like the simple flowing yet tightly bound pirate outfit with a bandana mm -hmm. is far simplified. For instance, to the point that like it's basically unrecognizable from the art. Mm. So like not everybody gets all the way there, but it is very impressive what they managed to do with most of the characters. And like it doesn't it goes a long way to like really given how big this cast is, really identifying each character from one another from a visual mm -hmm. design standpoint. They all have very distinct uh, silhouettes to them that when you actually see their detail also comes off as uh, just very nice looking and very detailed. Yeah. As a fun side note, I believe, I don't know if Mana was the lead character designer on Final Fantasy IX. I don't believe he was, mm. but I know that he did do artwork for it. Oh, yeah. And they are once again right back to, this is PlayStation 1 3D models, man. Mm. We, we yeah, can't. we can't do that, no. We can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if he did, he did any work on Nine. I know he definitely, 
what he would for the longest time he still works on the final fantasy series this day he, right. he does the logos for every game mm-hmm. yeah um, right but uh he would still do like basically like a promotional artwork where he mm-hmm. would just do the characters in his character style. renditions yeah yeah so if you want to see like what cloud looks like if, if via amano like you mm-hmm. could you could definitely see that mm-hmm. um it is uh and they're it, they are always interesting his art is never yes. uninteresting it, it is true uh, but FF9 is definitely right back to you look at it and you go, who is that? Yeah, I'm not. I played this whole game. I never saw that person. That's supposed to be Freya? Okay, sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, it makes sense to me. So the characterization didn't just stop with this uh, static visual presentation of the characters. Uh, the team also made sure to add additional flourishes to how the characters acted in game. And we already touched upon this a little bit, but mm-hmm. it, it goes pretty deep. Uh, instead of using, and it starts with uh, how they even designed the sprites in the first place. Instead of using a combination of larger and smaller sprites for the main cast, like they did in previous games, Final Fantasy VI decided to just go large sprite for everything. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they had to create a large amount of new animations, from crying to laughing to jumping around and whatnot. That meant that they would use in like the overworld cutscenes. But since they were using it for the overworld, they could use it for the battle scenes as well. Mm-hmm. What resulted in was the ability to have cutscenes happen mid-battle to advance the story, such as one of the characters, and we kind of already talked about this, when Terra mm-hmm. uses magic for the first time and freaks out their other party members, uh, or having Sabin and Cyan have to contend with the feral child Gaul after giving a piece of meat. What's more important to me, though, is this allowed them to insert small little touches to each character. Mm. And there are too many details to focus for, like, for us to focus on, so we're just going to just do one shared instance. So in Final Fantasy games, each battle has your party walk in from right to left to fight the enemy. And as they do this in the exact same way every time. They just walk on mm-hmm. until Final Fantasy VI. In that game, every character enters battle in a different way. Locke the Thief jumps down from the top of the screen to get into position. Celis, the conflicted general of the Empire, expresses surprise before recomposing herself and jumping into position. Uh, even characters that are like a little bit more jokey, like Mog, the cute little imp slash quasi bear, mm-hmm. he like he cheats his he cheats out to the camera and like waves to it before like while in the middle of the screen before getting into position. They all do a great job of giving just a little bit more insight to the personalities of each character. Mm. Yeah, and it's one of those de- little details that mm-hmm. like I didn't notice it until like much like later, like after like playing the game like a couple of times when I went. You know, now that I think about it, they don't do that in Final Fantasy V. And I'm like, no. well, and I'm like, oh, I bet it's just like they all like are like randomly jump into different positions or they have like a set amount of animations they go through. And it's like, no, each character is different. It's crazy. Mm. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Now, the characters and setting were all complemented by one of the best musical scores on the Super Nintendo. Mm. Composed by Nobuo Uematsu, the longtime composer of the series and one of the best ever to do it. Mm-hmm. The soundtrack is maybe one of the most complex produced for the system. Now, the Super Nintendo sound chip, the SPC 7000, geez, the SPC 700 was one of the most capable sound chips at the time, but it did have a lot of flaws to it. For instance, it was very tough to produce like hard hitting music with it. So, mm-hmm. like rock music or something similar was kind of difficult to do. Not impossible, but certainly mm-hmm. difficult. Yeah. And it was very easy to create very swimmy music, you know, very mm-hmm. ethereal, like, sort of, like, music that, uh, if you weren't intending it, it's gonna sound pretty bad. Right. It's hard to get to, like, the grunginess of the Genesis yeah. sound chip. 
yeah, you know, that when you don't have an FM synthesizer, you're just, that's a pretty big hurdle you gotta get over. <laughs> now, Uematsu and his team were well aware of its limitations at this point, and thoroughly took advantage of these strengths to produce a 60-some tracks for this game. Like, mm -hmm. the soundtrack of this game is huge. Mm -hmm. Like, each character got their own musical track that complemented what the character was, was about perfectly. From, like, Tara's sadness from not knowing who she was, to Locke's bluster about being a treasure hunter. To Celsus' conflicting despair, the music provided a ton of context to characters and scenes involving them throughout the game. And this didn't just extend to the characters. Things like the entire opera scene was thrown into the game, albeit without voice samples, to like a 17-minute theme for the final boss. Like <laughs> They basically did One Wing Angel before One Wing Angel happened. <laughs> uh, like It showed that they were willing to go all out for the sake of this game. Once again, kind of like too many to really like name specific moments, but probably my favorite set of tracks comes from The World of Ruin. Now, halfway through the game, the world essentially ends, and your party has to pick up the pieces in the wake of a destroyed world. Now, this is represented by an echoey, haunting melody that plays in the overworld as you explore destroyed towns and fight horrifying monsters. Have you ever like, heard like the World of Ruin theme? I think I probably have at some heard some rendition of it but i don't think i've heard like the original track hmm. yeah you want to listen to it real quick yeah sure Yeah, so, like, mm -hmm. very, very haunting melody, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very not, like, specific, not, like, standard background music sort of thing. Oh, yeah, it absolutely isn't. And, like, it's one, especially because, like, you start out that, like, just with one character, Celis, and they're, like, you're just mm -hmm. trying to find your friends. Like, it's a... It's it's a music track that really sets a mood, especially given mm -hmm. that you're walking over like the same continents that you were exploring like in the first half of the game, except they're all changed and destroyed right. now. Like it really sets the tone quite a bit. And like eventually though, you do find your friends and find a new airship and resolve to take back the world. And that's when the mm -hmm. theme actually changes to this. Like, with that, it's like, 
Like, mm -hmm. it's not completely upbeat. It's not completely like, okay, everything is fine now. But like, right. it's like a very hopeful theme, which kind of yeah. fits like, it fits the like whole like theme of that particular part of the game of like rebuilding and fighting, finding your friends, fighting back for the world and whatnot that I think, once again, I think it plays right perfectly into the story. And I think it mm -hmm. does an incredibly good job of setting the mood for that entire rest of the game. Yes. It's also harnessing the power of light motifs, which mm -hmm. is something I absolutely adore. Oh, yes. Th this game is just full of uh, full of that particular concept, like basically every track. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely great. And it's it's a track that I find is very underrated. Once again, mm -hmm. one that isn't completely happy, but rather just simply hopeful. And it completely mm -hmm. fulfills its purpose in a moment. And the game is just filled with touches like this. It's all these things, the graphics and how they tell the story of the world, the music and how they help set the mood and how they both work together to inform you about the characters of the game that I think allows Final Fantasy VI to have such a large cast and actually do a good job of communicating each character's story in detail. Mm. One thing I haven't mentioned about this, this is actually one of the shorter Final Fantasies. You, hmm. you get done within about 25 to 30 hours if you're relatively oh, wow. thorough. Like, it's not... The shortest Final Fantasy right. five is shorter, actually. But mm. the point is, is that that's not a whole lot of time to have really 11 main like 11 core characters mm -hmm. and three other characters that are optional, like to give right. them like enough room to breathe. But Final Fantasy six manages to do a good job about that. Hmm. Now, previously, most Final Fantasy games had four characters and you'd be lucky if they had much characterization at all. Yeah, like, five does a decent job about it, but it seems like the first time they really tried that. Mm -hmm. uh, Final Fantasy four, of course, is the exception with 12 characters, right. but those are mostly revolve around the main character or Cecil, which is not a bad thing, but that's how they did that. They're they right. are definitely supporting characters, right? Final Fantasy six does a masterful job of balancing the screen time that each of these characters get while trying. But once again, not really succeeding to not focus on one main character. <laughs> They fail because, once again, Terra is the main character. She literally yep. has two themes in this game. <laughs> <laughs> whose story you follow for the first half of the game. That being said, at the halfway point, they do switch over to another character, Celis, who even then is only in a spotlight for a few hours. And the rest mm. of the time is spent fleshing out the rest of the cast, and how they do that, I think, is pretty novel. You see, instead of having 14 characters that all have their own spotlight, they said pair them up with another character they can play mm -hmm. off of. Mm -hmm. So the Thief Locke and the Magitech General Celis form one pair. Another is the Royal Brothers Edgar and Sabin. Strago, Realm, and Shadow form another. And so the, all their interactions are going to be between each other. And like they play off and interact. And you get more of their backstories and whatnot. Such as Celis is being conflicted about betraying the Empire. Or mm -hmm. Locke's lock, comatose love and how people react to that. Or Strago's attempts to raise his precocious granddaughter. Mm -hmm. Other characters such as the high-flying gambler Setzer don't really form a distinct pair of anybody. But instead what they do, they have those characters filter in and out of the other pairs to spice things up, such as when mm -hmm. Cesar tries to kidnap Celis after he mistakes her for someone else. The only character who doesn't have a distinct pair is arguably Terra, whose mm -hmm. pairing with Locke is supplanted by Celis and instead just sort of sits out there alone. But this actually works because a big thing about Terra is not knowing who she is and how she fits in and mm -hmm. trying to find a role for herself to play. So even when a character is left alone, it still fits a purpose in this game. 
The last big thing I want to talk about is the translation and localization of this game. Mm. Up until this game, I think it would be safe to say that Square didn't have a good track record when it came to translating their games for a non-Japanese speaking audience. <laughs> you could say that, yeah. Now, to be fair, nobody outside of Nintendo at this point really was mm -hmm. doing this. Yep. <laughs> Limitations in the size of a cartridge meant there was less room for text. Limited resources in terms of tools and time provided localizers and translators meant these jobs were often rushed, and it didn't help that the translators had to meet Nintendo of America's standards and guidelines. Mm -hmm. uh, guidelines that included stuff such as no random or excessive violence, or <laughs> no religious references unless it was the Roman gods, and even no political messages or statements. Hmm. That one's fun because they say no overt or subliminal political messages, <laughs> which is like, I think that covers the entire gambit there. Yeah, that's uh, that's art and storytelling. Yep. So it's like, all right, we'll <laughs> do our best, Nintendo. <laughs> so localizers and translators at this time had basically everything going against them. Mm -hmm. And given that games like Final Fantasy VI were long and had a ton of text, it was mm -hmm. exponentially harder to make something that appeared both polished, faithful to the original script, and met guidelines. Yeah, I was going to say, like, Nintendo has a really good track record, but their games don't have that much text in general. Yeah, it's like The Legend of Zelda and Earthbound, and that's it yeah. for this period. And even Zelda's, like, fairly terse as yeah. RPGs go. It, it kind of is. Yeah, it's... Yeah, so they... It, like many things that Nintendo does, they, mm -hmm. they made it for their own niche. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so like... Yeah, basically, yeah, a lot of things that are working against them in this. And a lot of Square RPGs, including Final Fantasy IV, were kind of a mess. Mm -hmm. In fact, famously, Final Fantasy Legends II uh, was a, an incredibly, incredibly bad uh, translation. <laughs> like, there was a point where they talk, like, there's opium references in uh, mm -hmm. that game. And they replaced all the opium references with bananas. So it made everybody <laughs> seem like they were feeding for bananas. <laughs> like it's the very it's like the worst possible like find and replace like translation <laughs> effort that you could ever find so after final fantasy 4 came out in north america square finally wised up to this and decided to hire an actual localizer in fact it was legends 2 the previous game i was talking about mm -hmm. uh, that inspired him to go like oh we, we need to actually hire somebody mm. and, and this is not a joke Apparently, there were times Square had people in their finance department contribute to a translation project. So, yeah. real, like, piecemeal, next man up sort of situation here. L literally, hey, who knows English? Yeah. Do, do you know English? Okay, get in here, man. <laughs> Don't worry about the spelling. It's fine. So, for this task, they turned to Ted Woolsley. Mm. We've briefly touched on Woolsley, I believe, in the Crota Trigger episode. And mm -hmm. maybe even the Final Fantasy VII episode. And one day, sometime this year, actually, I do mm. have this on my list of topics. Uh, we are going to do an episode about 90s localization that will feature a mm. more in-depth look at Wolseley and others. That sounds fun. Oh, yes. I am really looking forward to that episode. It is going to be a pain to write, but it's going to be great. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the long and short, he was hired in 1991 to head up localization at Squaresoft, Square's American division. Now, Wolseley's job was to take these Japanese games get them translated in English in a way that complies with Nintendo of America, all usually within about a month or two at most. The pipeline apparently was nuts. Apparently he would have yeah. to fly to Japan, live there for a month, basically complete a script, go back to Squaresoft, and then from there, once they got like the masters of the game, 
mm-hmm. uh, have his team there do the like the reprogramming work and putting the script in there. Like it mm-hmm. sounds insane. Yeah. Now, if that wasn't difficult enough, it typically takes about twice as many English characters as Japanese characters for any given line. Right. So he had to make sure it all could fit onto what space was left over on a cartridge, which usually there wasn't a whole lot in the first place. Mm-hmm. This was a problem because it wasn't as simple as putting more memory onto a cartridge. Cartridges are physical media, right? Right. And if you want more memory on there, that's another chip. That's more mm-hmm. silicon. That's more transistors. That's more everything, right? And that's more money. Mm-hmm. And usually it's a significantly more amount of money, like we're like 5 to $10 worth mm-hmm. more, right? So because of that, they couldn't do that. Cartridges have already made the margins for these games as like profit margins as thin as possible as is. So they had to find a lot of times these uh, scripts would have to be truncated even further. So this is a tall task, one that is further complicated by the fact that it wasn't just text he had to worry about. Localization also meant altering visual elements. Mm. And there were a lot of visual elements in Final Fantasy VI that Nintendo wasn't a fan of. <laughs> Stuff like the bare bottom of the summon siren, for instance, was a no-go. Or signage depicting that a bar was nearby. Anything that looked vaguely religious or sexual had to be changed. Mm-hmm. Wolseley's translation of Final Fantasy VI may be one of the best translations under duress I have ever seen. Mm. Now, it is not perfect. No. But despite all a ton of stuff being altered and sanitized, he somehow managed to get across the story and nuance that was present in the original script. Mm-hmm. Now, there are mistranslations all over the place, some that do radically alter certain motivations for some characters. Locke, in particular, suffers quite a bit from this, so it's... Right. It ain't perfect, like I'm saying. But, right. But some characters actually benefited from the fact that they had to be sanitized. Right. It, yeah, because it also gets into this weird place of, like, a, a lot of localization isn't just translating, it is conversion from one culture to another. Yes. That, like, certain elements of storytelling in, say, Japanese culture don't really play well in United States mm-hmm. culture. Yeah, right? There's, like, weird idioms or puns yeah. or other things that, like, make perfect sense in, in native Japanese that just do not translate to English at all. So you got to figure out, okay, well, what sort of joke or phrase works in this that will get across that meaning? Mm-hmm. Like, and that's, like, honestly a relatively benign example of some of the things that they just had to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah, it's, and when you combine the fact that you have to, like, sanitize a lot of things, it, like, the article I referenced for this talked about how Woolsey basically had to make a deathless apocalypse. Mm, right. And he somehow right. does a good job with it. He, he manages <laughs> to pull it off. It's amazing. And one of the reasons he does that is how he writes the main, well, I guess writes is a strong word, how he mm-hmm. localizes the main villain of the game, Kefka. So let's talk mm-hmm. about him for a second. Mm-hmm. So Kefka is a general in the Empire who's a genetically altered person to use magic. But in doing so, this has made him incredibly unhinged, to the point that he's basically a mad clown. Mm-hmm. He's prone to bouts of anger and irrationality, and in general is incredibly unpleasant to be around for anybody, friend or foe. <laughs> in a Japanese version, he'll occasionally use flowery language, but will sometimes just get angry and start cursing at people. And obviously, that latter part can't work in the translation. Right. So Wolseley had to come up with like alternate lines in order to make him work. And here's where I think he does a masterful job. For instance... When he goes to, like, Figaro Castle, he, like, 
to like find Terra at the very start of the game, he sets it on fire to draw her out. Mm-hmm. King Edgar protests that Terra is not there, to which Kefka responds in the Japanese version, very, very simply, well, you will burn. There we go. Mm. This is too violent. So in the English translation, he instead just laughs and says, well, welcome to my barbecue. It's more mm. sanitized, but it comes off as more villainous as well. Right. It, it creates a sense of, like, detachment from reality. It does. Yeah, a sense of detachment and whimsy that mm-hmm. kind of fits his character as, like, being a weird gesture. Because also, like, they're not sanitizing the implication that he's going to burn everyone alive. Mm-hmm. But they have now created this sense of, like, if he is even aware of that fact, he doesn't care. Yep. Like, rather than being explicitly flippant about killing hundreds of people, he's just sort of doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it comes off as so much worse. <laughs> and it's great. Yeah, and, like, there's other stuff, like, just in this, like, one, like, scene, like, in Figaro Castle, mm-hmm. there's, like, so much other things here. Like, there's, like, another line where, like, the heroes get away from him. and he just, In Japan, the Japanese version, he just says, son of a bitch. He just curses. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the English translation, he says, son of a submariner. <laughs> Which, I mean, people have, like, criticized that line, but mm-hmm. it's a line that was so memorable that uh, when it was retranslated by Square in 2007, they ditched the submariner part, but he says, son of a sandworm now. Mm. Even at the end of the game, when the heroes are about to face him and are explaining why they are fighting him, he just cuts him off and says, this is sickening. You sound like chapters from a self-help booklet. (laughs) Whereas in the Japanese version, he just says, y'all make me sick. In my opinion, these little touches make the character more memorable. And it's Hmm. telling that the game was, when the game was retranslated for the Game Boy Advance in 2007, they kept a lot of these woolly-isms intact, such as the Mm self-help booklet line. It demonstrates the importance of a good localization. As an aside, this is the last Final Fantasy game Wolseley would work on. And mm. I think it's a little coincidence that Final Fantasy VII has such a poor translation as it does. Mm-hmm. But with that, Alex, I think I've basically exhausted everything I could possibly say about Final Fantasy VI. <laughs> it's a game that I think comes together in every possible facet. Its graphics inform its characters wonderfully. Its music informs the mood. It all come together to form a cohesive story that... Honestly, you could beat the game with only four characters and miss out on all of it, and you don't feel like you miss out on major things. Hmm. But if you do go and seek them out, you're heavily rewarded for it. Mm-hmm. And while there are still there are still going to be some flaws with the story that we'll point out next episode, I do think it comes off all the better for it. And in fact, next time, that is what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the plot of Final Fantasy VI. Alex, how are you feeling? I feel good. This is... Again, it is one of those games I have a major blind spot for just because I never got through it. Hmm. Um, but it does, it is a very interesting game, even from the outside. Oh, yes. Yeah, it certainly is. It certainly is. And yeah, like going through this and revisiting this game that I've beaten so many times, uh, but it's been a very long time since I've actually beaten it, probably a good 10 years at this point. Like, just, like, looking at, like, the field maps and the graphics in there and being like, oh, wow, yeah, the, those castles are, like, very round. They have, like, the metal piping that's mm-hmm. in here. It's, like, it's amazing. Like, it's, they have, it's three pixels wide, and yet they somehow make it seem like it has so much detail. Or, like, looking at, like, the sand dunes and seeing, like, oh, they made sure that, that every sand dune had, like, little dark spots to indicate shadows. Like, 
like going through there and like just seeing like the level of detail, just having a lot of fun doing that. Like it, it may be very happy to revisit this. Mm -hmm. And also just makes me happy to talk about something that's just fun and I enjoy. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a good game. We can say good things about it. Yeah. And like, you know, sometimes it's fun to say bad things about bad games. Yeah. But you, yeah. you, you sometimes need a break. And this is, I think this next sets, a few episodes are going to be a good break from that. Yeah. But yeah. You have any final thoughts before we sign off? So I played the Final Fantasy III remake on Nintendo DS. Mm -hmm. And oh boy, it's wild how much was not going on in that game. <laughs> Like, talking about all this just made me think about Final Fantasy III and, like, how much they expanded the script hmm. and, like, redid some of the battle system and job system elements hmm. and made nice 3D graphics. And it's like, man, that was a lot of work, but there was just nothing going on underneath it. Yeah. And it just went nowhere. There's so many interesting concepts of Final Fantasy III. Like the idea there that are. light isn't necessarily a good force, just as the dark's not necessarily an evil force, and there could be dark warriors just as there are light yeah. warriors and all that sort of stuff. But then you get to the main cast of the Onion Knights, and it's just like, I don't know, it's just there's four people. I'm I'm really glad that they finally remade Final Fantasy III into a good game when they made Bravely Default. <laughs> Yeah, they kind of did. Yeah, <laughs> they—that is literally what they did. Yeah, unironically, un that is exactly what they did. Yeah, it in Final Fantasy V is them going like, "What if the Onion Knights not only had names but distinct personalities?" Yeah, and what if they did interesting things? That'd be cool, right? Wow. Yeah, Final Fantasy III is a real collection of some real cool ideas. Yes, that they then kneecap, possibly due to system <laughs> limitations. Possibly because they just, I don't know, they just had no idea what they were doing they, at the time. I, I assume they made that game pretty quick and didn't really give any of those ideas time to breathe and flourish. Possibly. That kind of was a square MO for the late 80s, yeah. early 90s. Of just, but they were really good ideas and they'd make good games later. Exactly, yeah. They would eventually expand on all those concepts and they would all end up, you know, bearing fruit. Mm -hmm. Especially that job system. Oh boy, God, a good job system is just so cool. It made Final Fantasy X-2 a good game, in my opinion. Yeah? But yeah, Alex, thank you for doing this with me as always. Of course. And for you, the viewer, if you want to listen to other episodes of Fallen Through Plotholes, go to ftp.podbean.com or search for Fallen Through Plotholes on your podcast series of on your podcast service of choice, even. Uh, remember to leave us a like and a follow and all that good stuff. Leave us a review as well. Tell us how we're doing. Uh, we're also going to be on YouTube if you search for Falling Through Plot Holes and you can leave us comments there. Uh, you can also find, you can also send us uh, feedback at uh, Falling Through Plot Holes at gmail.com where you can ask us uh, questions such, you can tell us uh, things such as uh, what's your favorite job from the Final Fantasy series? Are you one of those weirdos who likes Final Fantasy V Advance and you you like the cannoneer job? <laughs> if so, are you are you a Necromancer fan? The job that you can only get after you basically 100% that game and thus it's absolutely useless to get? I, I bet you are. Mm -hmm. It's a really cool job. Too bad they don't let you use it. Mm -hmm. are, you, are you more of a dress sphere person? Are you, are you a Lady Luck fan? The dress sphere is so much more fun than it should be. It really is. It's so stupid, but it just, 
it just kind of clicks. It just kind of does. It just kind of does. I wish I wish the par- or the paradigm system from 13 clicked as well as the job sphere system does. Uh, yeah. Man, Final Fantasy 13 had such an interesting battle system. It's, it really did, and it just it never quite developed to a point of taking full advantage of it, I it, felt like. It never did. And eventually they just took those cool ideas and put them into 15 and 7 remake. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh well. They they got there eventually. That's the Square Enix way. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, sadly, yes. Combined with we've shackled this with something that you hate. <laughs> I'm just happy that they have um, already got those bad tendencies out of the way of their NFT game. Their, oh, their one God. throwaway game that they have every year that you just go like, how are you still in business? Yeah. W- would you like another gotcha game? No? When okay. All the gotcha we'll games just... are dying? <laughs> I know we just killed off like four of them, but here's a new one. Oh man, I love that one because when they showed it off, it's like look at all these imp- like different characters that you can customize with different hats, and their hair was clipping through the hats in the promo <laughs> artwork. And it's like, oh buddy, this is not going to be good. Yeah. Oh square. Well, with that, once again, Alex, thanks for doing this with me as always, and take care, everybody. Take care.